We are, again, having our Bible study this evening. That's going to be dealing with the Foundations booklet. So if you have your notes, if you copied them off, why don't you join us as we continue in this series that we're talking about on helping to disciple. Now, while you're getting set and getting your booklet open, your notes ready, your pen in hand, let me do a little bit of trivia here that talks about some things that are going on in America taken from several polls or some other studies. And so let me ask this first question from those of you who are at home, those here sitting here. What are a America's favorite sports? It's going to be up there. Baseball, football. Soccer's going to be there. Basketball will be there. Field hockey is not going to be there. NASCAR will be there. Golf will be there. You got pretty much all of them. Motor racing is number nine. And this is in the order of the popularity in America, which I do not understand number eight pro wrestling. But it's up there. Here's one for you. What are America's favorite ethnic restaurants? Italian, Italian will be up there. Mexicans can be up there. Chinese will be up there. What's that? Indian. Thai. No. That was Vietnamese was the last answer. Any others? Canadian is definitely not up there. Indian, Spanish, Thai, French, Greek, Japanese, basically sushi, Italian, Mexican, and number one, ethnic restaurant beyond American. Chinese, number one. What do Americans, Americans buy most often in their, when they go grocery shopping? Chocolate, Chocolate is n- not up there, okay? Uh, Bread is going to be one of them. Milk. milk is going to be one of them, okay? <laughs> Toiletries, it's not going to be listed up there, okay? Soda is going to be up there. Okay, water is not up there, but chips are. Here we go. Cereals are number eight. Frozen dinners are number seven. Uh, Cheeses, salty snacks, beer is number four. Bread, milk, and number one, most, greatest uh, amount of sales in grocery sales. Anybody have an idea? It's going to be sodas. Sodas are purchased the most. What states do most Americans want to visit? And Pennsylvania is not up there, especially at this point. North Dakota is not up there. Colorado will be one of them, I believe. No Maine. Hawaii. Out of the catacombs, John finally speaks and gets one. Florida will be up there. New York, I believe, is up there. In the top view. Maine is not up there. She already said that. Texas, I believe, is up there. You've not hit, you've not hit number one yet. Which one? Wyoming is not up there. Alaska is not up there either. North Carolina was nine. Massachusetts, eight. Oregon, Texas, New York, Hawaii, Colorado, Florida, and number one, California, California. Now, let's take the cities. What cities are considered the most popular places to visit? Chicago is a yes and a no here for a vote. What would you say? Now, yeah, well, if you want to get into crime, go to Chicago. 
New York City will be up there. LA. LA, I believe, is up there, yes. San Francisco is up there. Uh, I don't think Miami. Let's do them. Boston, Portland, Denver, San Diego, Seattle, L.A., Honolulu, San Francisco. Number one is New York City is up there. What are Americans' most favorite hobbies? Binging. Binging binging on TV, uh, I don't believe is up there. What's that? Woodworking. What's that? Woodworking. What's that? <laughs> What's that? Fishing is suggested. Any others? Hunting is suggested. Cooking, scrapbooking. You have any from home? Here's what they said watching sports. There's your binging. Doing something with health, fitness, playing video games. Traveling, reading and writing, cooking, music, doing something with music. And number one favorite hobby was, which I don't understand this one, gardening. Anything I would try to grow grow would be dead. Uh, What are the largest denominational church groups in America? The top four. Roman Catholic. Okay, this is, uh, no, Presbyterian is not going to be up there. Okay. Lutheran was suggested. Any others? Episcopalian. Here's what they have. Mormons. United Methodist. Southern Baptist. Number one is Roman Catholic. Now, let's take those who would be put in the, by the surveys, the Protestant groups. What are the largest? Obviously, the answer is the first answer. Number one should be obvious from the last question. It's going to be a number. Baptist would be number one. Presbyterian suggested. Methodist suggested. Methodist should be there since they were there before. Presbyterian is number six. Lutheran is five. Pentecostal, those who associate in that form, is is their Methodist, the second largest group that is the group that calls themselves non-denominational or independents, and then the Southern Baptists, those who are number one. Here's uh, an important question. What are the fastest growing religious groups in America right now? Everyone that we've listed up to this point are seeing a plateau or a decline. What are the fastest two groups that are growing where people are saying this is where they fall in? Islam is going to be one of the fastest growing. In fact, Islam has doubled in size since, um, since the 9-11 incident in America. No affiliation is the fastest growing group in America. The largest group. And in age-wise, somewhere right now, statistically, those that are under the 35, statistically, 27% are, are claiming they are no longer church-affiliated, which gives us the trend and the reason. That's it, thanks. Gives us the reason for why we want to be doing this Bible study. The Bible study is the idea that we need to be reaching out to people because we're living in a culture that is becoming very quickly, or has been, but now is, is absolutely putting itself in a non-Christian environment 
We are the world's mission field right now that has people coming into America. We need to be reaching them. So that's why we're doing this study because we realize we have this task to do and the task is getting harder. Therefore, we need to be better trained in making disciples. And that whole idea is try to reach out to an individual, to a person that you know, share with them, talk with them, try to to give out the gospel and no longer make the assumption that most people have a basic understanding of Bible truth. That's not the case. A lot of people don't understand sin concept. They don't understand much about Christ because many are growing up in non-affiliation. They aren't even going to churches. They're not hearing anything about the word. Even if it's distorted, they're not even hearing it. So Bible ignorance is growing and abounding here in America. Therefore, we need to make sure that you are Bible knowledgeable. And our goal in this is twofold. Help you to have a better understanding of Scripture basic Bible truths so you give answer to those that ask you the reason of hope and to help you to be able to share that with others, to communicate what you understand the Bible teaches to other individuals so that you have not only the knowledge but the tools by which to share the Word of God. And so that is what we're trying to do to help you to become a disciple and to make disciples based upon what the command of Jesus Christ. Now, the section we're in in your book is what's there on the screen. We're on that page is right around 100, <coughs> excuse me, and we're talking about the local church. So far in our previous two studies, we talked about the aspect that the local church, the term church, is found in Scripture, and it's a combination of two Greek words, ek and kaleo, which has the idea be called out. It was used in a secular sense of any type of group, business group, guild, called out to do business, uh, the assembly of the town council, whatever. But then it came to be applied to those who were called out to do God's business, not some secular business. That term ecclesia or church shows up in the Bible in the New Testament very often. Now, scholars have concluded that at 95% of the times that it shows up, it's referring to this type of a thing, a local church. We understand that there is a concept, (coughs) excuse me, with the idea of the large, broad family of God, that idea that, that Jesus Christ will build his church as a whole, and then he will rapture them. That is there in scriptures, but it is very infrequent in reference. Most every reference, 95%, is obviously talking about this type of thing, a local church, a local assembly. In fact, you go through the Bible, it's very clear. Tell it under the church is telling it to a local assembly, not broadcast somebody's indiscretion on the internet. We have multiple phrases such as these, under the churches of Galatia, to the church at Antioch, to the uh, Phoebe from the church in Sancria, under the church which is at Corinth, the idea of the churches in Judea, that concept of local churches where he talks about the communion. We have no such custom as far as the, the idea of some of the love feast in the churches of God. When he writes the, to the book of Revelation to the angel or messenger of the church, he identifies seven specific churches. So what I'm getting at is this whole idea that in the Bible when we talk about church, the vast majority and re- of references are talking about local churches. And the idea that we are talking in scriptures when we talk about what you need to be involved in is a local church, not just be part of Christendom as a whole, but get involved. Now, that local church, again, I'm going to just emphasize this idea how important it is and, and uh, how it is emphasized in the New Testament. The book of Acts talks about founding 
all kinds of local churches. That was the missions trips, the first, the second, the third that Paul went on, and how those churches were established. Much of the New Testament were written to local churches, specific ones that were located in different locales. And we already mentioned with some specific references, but you look up at all these different ideas are all these different books, and they are written to, with that idea, to a church. Several of the New Testament books are specifically written to church leaders in a local church and how they're supposed to operate. In fact, several of the letters focus on local church operations, how to choose a pastor, the deacons in that local church, what to do with the finances, as far as who to support the widows within the church in particular. We have Passages that talk about church service, what they're supposed to do in 1 Corinthians when they are getting together and doing communion, when they are having a worship service, and they at that time had the gift of tongues, how that was supposed to operate so that they would do things in, in decency and in order. And so you have all these different focuses. We're even talking in the series of Colossians about the teaching that is to be done in the local church and how to deal with some of those false teachers that come. So this concept of local church is, is permeated uh, the New Testament. Now, to define, and we talked about this and said, please write this down. Here is a simple biblical definition of church. It is the local church idea. A church is an organized assembly of born-again, baptized believers who are united to Christ and voluntarily unite with one another to do God's business as defined by the Word of God. That simple definition describes what we are. That, that's why we say that in order to become a part of this church, you need to give a testimony of salvation. You have to have been baptized by a biblical immersion. That's based on this definition that is taken from the, uh, the concept given throughout the New Testament of what local church is all about. So taking it a step further, now defining church and describing church, the New Testament uses a lot of different images, illustrations, uh, parallels in order to describe how the church is to function. And he uses a variety of titles, and we've been talking about some of those titles were in that section and in your notes, it's going to give you some. So don't page ahead, just hang on. Do you remember some of those different titles? We talked about one last week at length. We're going to be talking about a, a two or three today and then picking up and finishing off. But do you remember some of those various titles that are used? Descriptive terms. Some of you are already thinking, yep, the temple of God, that was one. The bride of Christ is another term. Pillar and ground of truth. The candlesticks. The flock. But the one that is most commonly used is the body of Christ. There are several others, and we're going to be referencing them as we go through. But today, let's pick up and let's follow through. But keep in mind as we talk about these titles. This is our in-study homework while you're going through. As we talk about, we mentioned last week, the body of Christ. I challenged you to think through one word, two words, or a simple phrase that when you think of the body of Christ, what was that emphasizing? Some of you had thought of oh, unity, diversity, um, you know, interdependence, the idea of growth, the idea of health and expansion. All those terms would, and ideas are really good. Whatever you put down with it when you're doing the Bible study, explain to the person that these terms are used to give a concept or stress multiple concepts, but you're going to share a couple of those that you think it highly stresses, which would be great, which would be good. And so we talked about the body of Christ. If you hadn't looked at last week's material, go ahead and go back and do that before you go any further today and realize that that local church concept, that body, which is the most frequent illustration 
or parallel used in the New Testament. That we concluded with this that the uh, Christian without a local church, without a body to be attached to, is like a hand, a foot, an ear that is detached from a body. It would be freakish. It would be something that would be scary. It is something that's not going to grow or contribute. And that's the same idea that we get with a Christian who is not attached to a local church. Let's pick up on another term that is used frequently in Scripture. The family. The family of God. Now, there's the family God that is broad, but also the concept of the family, even in the local church, that we are a family. Not just an organization, but an organism that has relationships. That's why we use the terms brothers, sisters. That idea that we're, we're to be treating each other like family treats. So let's develop that concept. And in your notes, you'll notice that they give you a couple of verses, and they ask the question, what, does the, the, what do these verses teach you about God in his relationship to the church? That first verse, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knows us not, <coughs> excuse me, because it knew him not. Beloved, we are the sons of God, family concept. Go a little bit further. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Again, we're talking about all of us being in a family, sons, daughters, that we are part of this family unit, even to them that believe. Now, if you pause for a moment, and you, you may want to pause these, this lesson and just think about what lesson or lessons does, do these verses teach us about the church as part of God's family? Think about it. What is standing out here? Anything about family, God's thought about his family? You ponder it for just a moment and then go on. I'm going to build upon that and give you several of the lessons that stand out to me. That God loves us greatly. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Another thought, it is by his great love that any of us are called his children. It is this concept, none of us are automatically his children. Those that believe on him become the sons of God. That idea is that we weren't prior to our born-again experience. Only those who believe and receive Christ become the sons of God. Another thought, any of us, as many as received him, any individual can become a child of God if they fulfill that requirement of believing and repentance. The church, therefore, consists of those who believed and thus entered into God's intimate family. Now, going a little bit further, your notes give you another passage. For you are all the children of God by faith. The qualification there. For as many of you who has been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is therefore neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, and neither male or female. We are all one. We're all children of God once we get born again. And we don't have those prejudices, those ethnic uh, divisions anymore. We're brothers and sisters. We don't have... The idea that the females are much lesser in value or quality or children the same as the males. No, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And we're even, and remember how Peter talks about uh, treating your wife as your sister, a fellow heir. That idea that though we have these earthly relationships, in the spiritual sense, we are all on an equal plane before Jesus Christ. What lesson about church comes from these verses? Again, you may pause, think about it, or just continue with me. Here's some of the thoughts. When we have believing faith, we are baptized, put into Jesus Christ. Uh, this is for all believers, not just a select few. All of us have this unity with Christ, who is our father, brother. As well, those in Christ are all valued equally. 
very clearly emphasizing this family concept that we are all united and we have this unity not only between us and Christ, but this unity between one another, a family concept. We go a little bit further in your notes. He talks about that we might receive the adoption of sons because we are sons. God has sent forth the spirit into a, of the son in our hearts so we can cry, Abba, Father, wherefore you are no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir. Again, a lot of family terminology. A lot of biblical concept is built upon the culture and custom of that day. And so we look and say, what lessons... Let's highlight one, and then we need to explain culture. And you would want this information to explain and to develop to those that you're doing the Bible study with. This is very, very important because our American culture doesn't quite have this idea of sons and adoption the way the ancient Near Eastern culture did that Paul was writing about. Believers are adopted into God's family. Let's go back. Let's remind ourselves about their culture and how they operated and what he's getting at. In the ancient Near East, the A&E, their codes for adoption, it was a legal process whereby parents would make someone their legal guardians. This could include even your biological offspring, that you would still have to adopt them legally. So the adoption was necessary in both the Greek and Roman society, And this would be adopting your own child so that they are now legally your heir. Or you could be adopting somebody else and making them into your family. Again, our concept of adoption is different. We think adoption in the fact of somebody outside of our family coming in. But in biblical days, it could also include those within your biological unit. Prior to adoption, even the biological children had no legal standing. They had no legal rights. They, they were on the par of a household slave. In fact, in many of these ancient cultures, at times the children, the offspring, until they reached the age of adoption, until they were legally adopted, they were even in, in the uh, times of meals, in the times of some of their care. They were taken care of. They were with the servants. That's why he talks about in this passage, you are no more servants, but heirs. Why? Because you were adopted. You were elevated to a new relationship. Once adopted, they had greater access. Then they ate regularly with the parents. Then they as well became the legal heirs. So back in Bible days, adoption was very, very, very important. One of the shows that many of you are familiar with that was a classic is Ben-Hur. And in that whole story, you remember how it all talks about that that, that Judah Ben-Hur, he was uh, accused of trying to harm the Roman leader, and therefore he was taken away from his home in Jerusalem. He was put in a prison ship for several years, and while he's on that prison ship, the, he's involved in a, in a naval battle as one of the rowers. And the story develops that the admiral upon the ship that who is who is uh, in charge of the ship where he is one of the rowers, they crash. He, the admiral is thrown into the water. Um, Ben-Hur jumps into the water, rescues that man, and, then, and saves his life. As a result, that man's navy had, had a great victory. They get picked up in the water a day or so later. And that man now ends up going back, that admiral, to, to the uh, city of Rome. They have the huge parade. And he's able to have somebody with him in his chariot. And he picks Ben-Hur, who had rescued him, the slave to, to whom he owed his life. And in the story as it unfolds, he adopts Ben-Hur. 
And as a result, Ben-Hur is elevated in Roman society, that he is now the son of the proconsul, that he's given a ring, he's able to go back to Jerusalem with authority, with power, because he's been adopted into that noble uh, Roman family. That is very cultural. That is very much what is being talked about in the book of Galatians. That somebody could be a slave, somebody could be an outcast, but then they could be chosen to be adopted. And once they're adopted, they are on this new plane that they are legally, they are in fellowship with that person who's adopted them. And so taking that concept, look back here, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Not only are we born into the family, but we're elevated as legal heirs. And because you are sons, he has sent forth the spirit into the, into, of the son into your heart so you can cry, Abba, Father. Remember? Close fellowship once you're adopted. Wherefore, you are no more a servant. Remember, you, the kids were on that par. They even ate with the servants. But you are now a son, a legal heir. And if a son, then an heir with God. This is an important concept. Something that God does for us, not something we can do for ourselves. And as a result, we're elevated to be heirs of God. We are in this permanent position that allows us to have an intimacy with Christ with God the Father, that he, we can say to him, Ava, Father. What a phenomenal thought. Now, we go a little bit further. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. John is just amazed by this. He is really impacted. And so he's awed by that fact. Let's develop this a little bit further. As you look at First John chapter 3, you see John's impression, his thrill, his excitement. But what influence then should being part of God's family, how should that influence the way we live? Well, we're looking at John chapter 3, verse 1. Let's look at two verses later. Two verses later in your notes we have it quoted. And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Which means that since we are God's children, what should we be doing? What should we be doing? Think about it. You may want to pause and write down some thoughts. Let me give you some of the thoughts that came to mind. We should live to please our Heavenly Father. As we in this life, we try to please our earthly parents. We, this, living, this living to please our Father involves pure living. With Christ as our example and standard for personal purity. This effort is of life to live a pure life is something that should be in every believer's heart and plans and purpose. This effort to live a pure life is a present reality. He says very clearly that every man that has this hope is purifying himself. It's not something that he's thinking about doing later, but if you're truly a child of God, what that does is that motivates you to have purity right now. And not only right now, but keeps on purifying even as Christ is pure. So having, having been born into the family of God, adopted into the family of God, which, by the way, those spiritual activities, the birth and then the adoption, they come simultaneously with your born-again experience and at that moment. So all of that has impact on how we live afterwards. For those who say that, oh, all you have to do is call upon Christ, then you can live any way you want. That's not true in the spiritual realm. As a child of God, you want to change. You want to become more Christ-like. That is one of the evidences of true salvation. So we have that concept of family. Now let's, let's talk about it a little bit more. How would that look like in interaction with one another? A biblical concept that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, then, then how does that play out when we get together as a local church? Well, let's back up and let's, um, let's do it this way. Let's take our families in 2020 and let's talk about how our families interact with one another. 
And that'll give us some parallels of how we should treat one another. So thinking about it, how would you fill in the blank? Family members do what or treat other family members how? What would you put in there? What kind of phrases? As a family member, we blank one another. Just take a moment, write down some of those concepts on a piece of paper. Talk about it between you. As family members, how do we interact with one another? How do we treat one another? How do we deal with one another? Write down as many as you can think. And then after you do that, then turn it back on and then I'll share what I have. Here we go. Family members with one another. Here's some of the things we do. We make sure the needs are met for each other. We protect one another. We look out for one another. We interact with one another. We're interested in one another. We support. We encourage one another. We help through difficulties. We teach one another. We speak well with one another. We rally to the family member who's hurting. We, We interact in the sense of playing and doing things. We come to peaceful agreements. We point out dangers that might be happening to other family members. We rebuke when needed as family members. We love one, the other one goofs up. We still love. We may tease, but we still love. We forgive one another. We hope for the best for our family members. We listen to one another. As well, we pray for one another. Now, you may have other ideas, which I'm sure are excellent and good that could be added to this, but let's take this and say this is the way theoretically family should operate. How does this translate then into our relationship as church members? What should we be doing for one another? The parallels are almost identical with what I've written and probably with what you've written, that as we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and many of us are in that family, in that body together, we should still be doing the same things. Interacting, hospitality, praying for one another, lifting up one another, encouraging one another, warning one another, rebuking when it's needed, pointing out the dangers, coming to peaceable agreements when we do have division, looking out for the needs of one another, the idea of supporting and being interested in one another, making sure the needs are met. All of these are definite applications of how we should treat one another as family members. So let's take it a step further. Again, you're doing a Bible study. You're talking with a younger believer, somebody who may not really have matured much in the Lord. Okay, let's see if we can find some parallels. How do older family members treat younger family members? Let's talk about your family. The family members, what do they do with the younger ones? What do the parents do with the kids? What do the older siblings do with the younger siblings? Think through. What are some ideas? Again, if you want to pause, do that, and then write some ideas down, and maybe even as a family, talk about this, how we're supposed to, what the older are supposed to be doing for the younger, and then come back, and I'll share with you some extra thoughts. Here's what I have. They should help to teach what is good. They help teach what can hurt. We warn, even as parents, we warn the little ones about those things that are dangerous. We help meet basic needs. We protect them from bad food. We teach basic skills. Even as my family was growing, the older siblings would help even in some of these areas with their younger siblings. They encourage. They challenge when they do wrong. They give them a good example. They keep an eye on them. Even while they're playing, they give them help with chores and tasks. Uh, when there's somebody who is fearful, they come by. They, that older person, the parent or the older sibling, they can provide that comfort. They occupy them to avoid trouble. They assist with homework and learning. They tell stories to help teach them truths. They take time to patiently instruct. They warn about bad friends. We can go on and on and on about this. But let's shift the parallel and say, okay, how does this, what does this mean for you and me 
with younger Christians. And so we say, okay, the church with young believers, the older believers, like many of you, what should you be doing for the younger ones? Hey, you should be helping with some of the basics. Challenge when they do wrong. Protect them from something that's dangerous. Tell them stories to help them to learn truth. Warn about different friends. Take time to instruct. Occupy them. As well, give them help with chores and tasks that are that are overwhelming or impossible for them to do. This family concept has very, very practical application of how we're supposed to interact and treat one another. So let's ask this question, which is an important question. Why will a genuine family spirit or atmosphere, why would that attract others to the gospel of Christ? Why would unbelievers want to have what we have if we're acting like a real family? Would that impact them? Would that appeal to them? I I think absolutely because the Bible says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Okay, how does that help us to reach out to other people? How does that impact others who may come in and visit? And if they see and sense a true family relationship of loving concern and support, will that attract them? And why would that happen? Because they'll find and feel acceptance because they will find help that they that is needed uh, in their life because they will feel helpful and have a purpose in contributing to other people's lives they will feel like they can make a difference that they can have an influence they'll feel like someone has their back no matter what is happening they will find hope this family concept isn't just theoretical it's to bo- supposed to be practical and so what it comes back to is you and I looking around and saying Who might we minister to? Who of our brothers and sisters might be younger in the Lord, but we can reach out to, we can help, we can give some assistance. And so that idea of family is very important. A Christian without a local church, they're like an orphan. An outsider without a family. Somebody who's left all alone. You need a local church. You're doing the Bible study and you're going to say to that individual, they need to be involved in a local church family atmosphere. Now, stop and think about family. What thought... As we've gone through this brief study, what thought or thoughts, words, might you put in here and say, okay, when it comes to being called family, that means to me the local church is what? You have some thoughts? You have some ideas? I put down these things, and you probably have much better ones than I do. It means it's a place of love. There's a relationship. There's to be a unity like a family. There's supposed to be support. The idea that we're there for one another. The idea that we're loyal to one another. The idea that there's interaction. That's family. There's communication. That's family. There's help. That's family. Watching for one another. That's a family concept. We stick up for one another. Now, you may have other concepts. But in your notes right by... There, that title, what would you share with that new Christian, that new convert? What would you share with them that this is why God chose family? He was stressing this concept. What would you write down there? Now, the next concept I want to look at just briefly, yet for today, is flock. That shows up frequently in scriptures. That Jesus used that idea of him being a shepherd and talked about his flock. And there's some in the future who will be added to that flock that he's talking about. And so we're supposed to take our Bibles, and let's do that. Let's take our Bibles, and let's head over to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 20, and we're going to read just a few verses, and then we're going to answer these questions. In Acts chapter 20, jumping down to verse 28, and in this section, it is when he is meeting with the Ephesian elders, and he's talking to them about the flock. 
Jump down to verse 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. He goes on a little bit further. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore watch Remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. And he goes on and gives them some more, uh, some more information. Who gave the shepherds their position of leadership according to verse 28? You see it, you put it down, you, God, God did it through the Holy Spirit. The idea, therefore, of shepherds, pastors, it's a good one. It came from God. It isn't a man-made concept that all of a sudden grew in church history. It was God's idea even at the beginning of the church. Now, God knows that they are important to the flock. Why? Why is it necessary for a flock to have a shepherd? Well, you and I can make those obvious um, Answers right off the way that sheep need somebody to protect, to feed, to be able to guide. Let's, let's go on a little bit further. To what are false teachers compared to? Well, you look at the text. They're grievous wolves because they're like a wolf who would harm a flock. They would hurt. They would destroy. They would scatter. They would prey on the weak. They would separate the, the flock so that they can pounce on them. And so it's, they're very, very dangerous. They are using this analogy. From, what do, from where do many of these false teachers arise? Paul said some are going to come from without. Some are going to come from within. That there's going to be even those who were within the body, professing believers, who after a period of time, they became caught up with some of the false teachings. And so within the body, we need to have shepherds protecting from wolves creeping in in sheep's clothing. We take it a little bit further. Why is the church in need of continual warning? Well, that's an obvious answer. The false teachers are a real threat, as we mentioned. The false teachers are an ongoing, perpetual threat. That Paul's said, I've been warning for years. I did this in the past. And they're still going to keep on coming. These false teachers aren't going to disappear. In that lifetime of Paul, they have not disappeared since then. They are still very prevalent and predominant in many ways, and we still have to be dealing with them. God knows his sheep are vulnerable to the attacks, and he knows there is greater safety in numbers, and they need to be protected by under-shepherds or the poimane, the shepherd, the term we call pastors. So we go a little bit further. And we understand that when he's talking about the word feed, he's using that word literally to shepherd from which we get the idea of poimane, we get the idea of pastor. That concept is that we are not only sheep, but as pastors, we're to be protectors. And so, if we were to take our Bibles and look on John chapter 10, and we would find that Jesus Christ is talking about those who are taking care of flocks. And he makes this comment in John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18, about those who are working, he says, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the flock. But he that is a hireling, and not the shepherd, whose own sheep are they are not, sees the wolf coming, he leaves, he flees. The wolf catches them, scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he's a hireling, cares not for the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I'm known of mine. For as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold... 
Them also I must bring future tense. They shall hear my voice. There shall be one fold and one shepherd. Eventually will be that one body in Christ. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. I must bring them. Therefore does my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man takes my life from me but I lay it down. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it again. This is the commandment I received. What specific ministries does a pastor shepherd provide for a local church? that a shepherd would for their sheep. You're writing down, you're thinking some of those concepts. Let me add, leading, protecting, feeding, guiding, watching over, refreshing, defending, caring for. It's the normal state of the sheep to be in a flock and assisted and protected by a shepherd. It's a biblical concept that God says is supposed to be done in a local church. This facilitates the growth the protection, the expansion, growth of the sheep individually, growth of the, of the herd, the flock, as they multiply, as they produce. The concept of shepherd flock is very, very important. And so it takes us back to that idea. A Christian without a local church is like a sheep without a flock, without a shepherd. This concept is very, very important. And so we look and say, ask ourselves the question again. Okay, thinking of a single word or phrase. When we think about flock, a flock of God, what comes to mind? What concept is there? What, 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 what do you think about? Again, you may want to pause. You may want to write down some answers. Here's some of the things that I thought of. When we think about flock, a need for a group. When we think about a flock, the need of a shepherd. That God has designed that we need them. That I needed a shepherd. I know in my Christian life, when I first got saved, I needed somebody to answer my questions, to guide me, to direct me. And I'm so thankful for the spiritual leaders, the shepherds that God gave me over the years to be able to help me out, to be able to teach me, to feed me the word of God that I needed week after week, to be able to sit me down at times and say, hey, you need to grow in this area. You need to, you need to be careful of this type of a decision or what you're doing to get direction at times. In making decisions, major life decisions. And so the need for a shepherd is there. Uh, the idea of flock, God's care. The idea of a flock, we're needy. Again, you and I understand this because we've heard this enough as we've grown in the Lord that sheep are not the smartest of animals. That like, like the sheep, they couldn't really defend themselves. The sheep, uh, the sheep in the pasture, they don't have natural defenses, you know, like, like the skunk or animals that can shoot quills or animals that have the sharp teeth. That's not the sheep. They're a defenseless animal. And as we've heard before, they're not considered the brightest of all the animals. And so that's where you and I are. We understand that. We are needy. We understand that sometimes we are not the brightest, that we need assistance and guidance and being a part of the flock. It is helpful to be able to get a hand from others. Listen, there are other concepts I had hoped that I'd have time to do a couple more, but we're going to pause for right now as we've probably exhausted some of your patience and you've had time for conversation, but take a moment or two and discuss this idea of what it means to being part of a family. How does it mean to be a part of a flock? What does that mean in your reaction and relationship to other individuals? My friend, I hope that as we continue this study, even though we're going at a snail's pace, I hope that it's helping to cement in your mind that local church is very important. That local church is a vital, a vital necessity in your life. 
And even though we're in this interim where we are doing things somewhat live streaming, as soon as we are physically possible, we need to be flocking together again. We need to get the family together again to do that interaction. It is so important. Church is not designed to be sitting by yourself isolated. The concept is group, family. The concept is body, the group again. The concept is a flock. All that idea of interacting, getting involved with one another. And by God's grace, we're going to be able to resume some of that and some of you are going to be able to just continue to add to our regatherings in the very near future and get it get the benefit of the flock the benefit of the body the benefit of that family interaction until then i pray that god gives you a fabulous week god bless you thank you for joining us and i hope that god will continue to use you in your witness as you share the word of god with other individuals god bless you have a great day